and especially an England supporter, and if you're over 40, you will not forget the 1986 World Cup. England's footballers were in the quarterfinals and were strongly fancied that year. They were drawn against Argentina, but England were knocked out 2-1 by Argentina. And you will remember that the decisive goal was scored by Diego Maradona, who punched the ball in with his fist, and with a smirk afterwards said that it was the hand of God. It's not fair, said all the England players as they mobbed the referee. It's not fair, shouted all the England supporters. It's not fair, chorused all the British sporting press the next day. But all to no avail. The goal was allowed to stand and England were knocked out of the World Cup. How often do we hear the cry, it's not fair? Whether it's children squabbling in the playground, whether it's, perhaps more seriously, someone who's been done out of a prize by someone else's cheating, or whether it's minority political parties howling with complaints that all the votes that they gained were not reflected in seats in the House of Commons. It's not fair. There seems to be this sense of right and wrong built within each of us. That appeal to a sense of fair play which seems to be an unwritten rule. But I want to suggest this morning that the Bible is very unfair. Take the parables, for example. Jesus told a story about a rich landowner who went to the marketplace to hire day labourers to work on his land. Some he hired early in the morning, some at midday, some some during the afternoon and some as dusk was falling. And when the foreman came to give them their pay, those that had toiled all day in the heat of the sun were horrified to find that those who had worked only one hour were paid the same as them. It's not fair, they said. But the landowner said, I have a right to give whatever I like to whoever I choose. And what about that most famous parable of all? The one we call the prodigal son. The loyal, hard-working elder son gets no party, while his dissolute younger brother is welcomed home with great celebration. It's not fair, snarls the angry elder brother, as he stands fuming outside the house. But let's stop and think for a moment. The parables are about you and about me. And like millions and millions like us, At the start of this service, we heard the wonderful words of Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. A wonderful glimpse in the Old Testament of the wonderful mercy of God. Some hypothetical bystander would say, it's not fair, why shouldn't they be treated as their sins deserve? What's happened to fair play? Shouldn't people pay the price for the wrong things they've done? 
And look at our reading in 2 Corinthians 4. Who is this man who writes so eloquently about the light of God shining in his heart? The man who looks forward with tremendous confidence to being raised with Christ. Why, it's Saul of Tarsus. The man who hounded poor Christians, hauling them off to prison, pursuing them to death. It's not fair. Why should he be rewarded with all these blessings? And there have been many millions of examples since Saul of Tarsus, haven't there? Nicky Cruz, the New York gang leader, who led a life of violent crime until David Wilkerson, a country preacher, came to New York, preached the good news to him, and he now leads a life of preaching to others. How did he get into the kingdom of God? It's not fair. John Newton, whose hymn we've just sung, who captained a ship that brought slaves from Africa to work on sugar plantations. How did he get into the kingdom of God? It's not fair. Let's come a bit closer to home as you look around in church, as you look at me perhaps. How did he get into the kingdom? How did she? If I'd been choosing people for my kingdom, I wouldn't have chosen him or her. What we're looking at, of course, as you well know, is what the Bible calls grace. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Totally undeserved mercy and love lavished upon people like us who don't deserve it. And although hundreds of times we've sung and talked about grace, I don't think even now we've fully appreciated the depths of God's love for us that results in us coming into his kingdom totally undeservedly. Not one of us in this building this morning has earned our place in heaven. Each one of us is in God's kingdom because of his grace. In each of the parables I mentioned, there is a figure who represents God, the landowner, the father, People in a position to reward who do so, not on the basis of something that's done, of something that's earned, but freely out of their love, lavishing their love upon needy people. And my theme this morning is a very simple one, but a wonderful one. I want to talk about the three G's. No, it's not God, good child and gardener. The three G's of the Christian life. Grace gratitude and glory. Three things which should characterise your life and mine. Because grace is where the Christian life starts. With a loving father who looks at you and at me, who sees all the things that are wrong in my life and in my heart, and nevertheless looks at Christ suffering on the cross for you and for me and sees not our sin, not all those barriers that keep me out of the kingdom, but looks at Christ and sees my sin laid on him. You may be thinking this morning that you're not good enough to be a Christian. You may look around and think, we're all nice people here, and you're not good enough. They don't know what I've done. 
They don't know what's in my heart. Perhaps we don't. But God knows. God knows. And God is prepared to welcome you into his kingdom. We come to him confessing that we can never earn our salvation. We can never earn our place in heaven. And we say, Lord God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And millions upon millions of people will tell you that when you do that, when you do that, as I did many years ago, God gives us a new heart, a new spirit, a new birth into his kingdom. The passage that Sandra read to us talks about us as being like common clay pots. Okay, that's what we are, aren't we? We're sort of rather dusty, like those old flower pots that I was turning out from my garden shed yesterday as I did some gardening. Those old, dusty, dirty clay pots. That's what we're like. And as we look around at each other, perhaps we do know our faults. Perhaps we do see each other's shortcomings. Because... We're not beautiful golden vessels, we're ordinary human people. But, says the Apostle Paul, we've got a treasure. We're filled with a treasure that's worth far more than all those diamonds that were stolen from Hatton Garden. A treasure within. And what is it? He describes this as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we've got. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Can we take it in that within me, that light that's shining within me, is the light that illumines the wonderful glorified Jesus Christ there in heaven. There may be somebody here this morning who's recently started attending church and you're still wondering what it's all about. I want to ask you, do you have that light shining in your heart? I want to ask you, do you look into your heart and do you still see darkness? What you need is God's grace, God's forgiveness, which he is more than willing to shower upon you. He's like the loving father, just longing for you to come back home to find your place within the arms of a father who's not going to judge you and condemn you because of your sins, but is not going to treat you as your sins deserve, but is going to give you his grace. I want to ask you this morning if you've been coming to church for a long time, so that church has for you become like a comfortable, well-worn slipper. Have you got the light shining in your heart? Just a cursory reading of the New Testament reveals that the first Christians weren't walking around with halos on their head, living comfortable life, worshipping in beautiful church buildings. No way. They were ordinary people, often leading lives of great hardship. Many, many of the first Christians were very poor. They didn't have beautiful church buildings, they met in homes, they were often persecuted as Christians in many countries are persecuted today. These were ordinary people, common clay pots, whose lives have been touched with something so wonderful, 
that they couldn't help but spread the good news around, telling people about this love of God which could transform their lives and of the risen Son of God who could fill them and give them purpose in life. The Apostle Paul went through more hardships than most. In their reading, he talks about being hard-pressed, about being crushed, about being perplexed, about being persecuted, abandoned, struck down. But God never abandoned him. God never left him alone. In all that, he had this treasure within him, this glory, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining in his heart. Because the touch of Christ brings a touch of glory to your life and to mine. And that's the second of my G's that I want to highlight. The future glory, the weight of glory as this passage describes it. Do you know we don't sing so many hymns about the future glory these days, do we? When I became a Christian half a century ago, there were lots of hymns in the hymn book about going to heaven about seeing Jesus Christ face to face. When the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. Is it because our lives have become more comfortable? Is it because we've lost that vision of that wonderful destination that awaits every Christian, of being forever with Christ? Seeing Jesus Christ face to face and worshipping him as he deserves to be worshipped. There's a glory that's touching our lives now and it's gradually getting more and more until that perfect day. It's difficult to describe and perhaps we're wrong to try to describe the future glory. People have described it in terms of playing harps, streets of gold, etc. I like Tom Wright's idea of the future glory. He says it's like a superabundance of humanness. What on earth does he mean by that? Well, he says, just as we sometimes say, oh, she's just a shadow of her former self. Shame, really. Thinking of the future glory, we are just shadows of our future self. Sorry, I think I quoted it wrong just now. When we look at someone who's not too well, we say he's a shadow of her former self. The idea of glory is that we are but shadows now of our future self. What we shall become. There's a scripture that I haven't looked up here, but it's going around in the back of my mind about what we shall be does not yet appear, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. Oh, I don't think much of the preacher this morning, Mike Gardner up there on the platform, preaching away to us. Ah, someone may say, but he's just a shadow of his future self. What he's going to be, only God knows. And as I look around at you, only God knows what he's going to make of you, what you are going to be doing, as in John Newton's hymn, bright shining as the sun, there in glory. If the Christian life starts with grace, it finishes with glory. But perhaps we should content ourselves with the words of Paul, written elsewhere, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So our Christian life begins with grace. 
and it ends with glory. What comes in between? Grumbling, of course. We grumble, don't we? We grumble about the weather, we grumble about the government, we grumble about church, we grumble about the minister, we grumble about this, that and the other. And sadly, there are some Christians for whom the second G consists of grumbling, finding fault. Isn't it sad? It happened with those first Christians as well. That's why there's so many commandments in the New Testament for us to love one another. Paul and John and Peter keep on and on about it. Love one another, accept one another, forgive one another, help one another, bear one another's burdens. No. What should characterise our life between the grace and the glory is gratitude. Paul here in this passage that we read in verse 15 says the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God is there thanksgiving overflowing from your life have you got so much thanksgiving and so much gratitude to God that it just bursts out and overflows from your life and touches other people You may say to me, ah, it's all very well for you to get up there on the platform mic and preach about gratitude. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I'm going through. That's fine. I don't understand what you're going through. I don't understand the situation in which you have to live your Christian life. But God knows. And God can give that grace that would enable you to cope with what faces you tomorrow or next Thursday when you have your hospital appointment or that situation at home or your anxiety with your family. I refer to the parable of the prodigal son. And for me, the more I look at that parable... And perhaps you feel the same. The most significant character in that story is the older brother. And the older brother, if we think about him, that man standing, fuming outside the party, refusing to go in, bitterly snarling that it wasn't fair. He characterises an attitude that we so easily slip into, an attitude of resentment, of complaining, of feeling sorry for ourselves, Because there are two ways of looking at gratitude. First of all, there's a gratitude that is measured in proportion to what I receive. I receive a birthday present. Oh, thank you, auntie. That was just what I wanted. I receive something really wonderful and I'm more effusive in my thanksgiving. I I, I go on and on. I, I say, that's wonderful. I'm really bowled over by your generosity. But there is a gratitude that doesn't depend on what we receive. The elder brother standing outside that house hears his father's gracious words. My son, my son, 
You are always with me and everything I have is yours. That man's anger is met by the father's grace, just as his younger brother's reckless living and subsequent repentance and return was met by that same grace. God hasn't got special love for people who go off the rails, for people like John Newton or, the, or Saul of Tarsus or Nicky Cruz or the prodigal son. God hasn't got a special reserve of grace for those who have gone so far off the beaten track. God's special love is just the same as for the most dissolute sinner, just the same for you and for me. And the fact that we don't regard ourselves as huge, great, died-in-the-wool sinners doesn't exclude us from God's grace. God says to us, my son, my son, my daughter, my daughter, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Because gratitude is a discipline a discipline that we learn, a way of life. Listen to the words of Henry Nowen, the Dutch priest who gave up a glittering career in the academic world to look after people with disabilities. And he writes this. I can choose to be grateful instead of a complaint. When there is resentment in my heart, I can choose, instead of giving vent to that resentment, to be grateful. It's a gratitude that's not measured out in proportion to the gift received, but an overflowing of thanksgiving that we're going to be singing about in a moment or two's time. My life, my heart is filled with thankfulness. So during this week, we can choose to focus on those causes for our resentment. We can choose to be angry like the elder brother because of the unfairness of life. Or we can choose to turn to God and to say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for your love, which you will never take from me. Thank you for your grace, which sustains me day by day in my situation, with my illness, with my disabilities. And thank you for that glory that you have laid up for me. during this week. Let's follow the Apostle Paul's example and also his advice. At the end of this chapter, he asks us to do something that's impossible. You ever notice that? We fix our eyes on what is, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Okay, Paul encourages to look at invisible things this week. Encourages us to look at one another and not to find fault, not to complain, not to criticise, but to look at one another and to thank God. Thank God for my brother, for my sister. Thank God for what he has done for them and what he will do for them. And to thank God for his wonderful love for me. Thank God that whether I'm a great sinner or whether I can't think of any great sins I've ever committed, 
thank God that he loves us so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer on the cross for me. Let's do in this week, look at those things that are invisible, the future glory, which tongue cannot describe, which cannot even enter into our conception. That future glory that is there, not because we're deserving it, not because we're earning it, but because God wants to throw a party for us, just as he did for the two sons. He wanted the two sons to be in on that party. God is wanting to throw a party for us that's going to involve us being transformed. And as we reflect on the past, the grace of God that brought us into his kingdom and that today can bring you into his kingdom if you're not sure, talk to me afterwards and say, Mike, I want to come into God's kingdom. I want to know this grace, this forgiveness. As we reflect on that grace as we reflect on that future glory, the fact that our lives are hid with Christ in God, 